Being a geek is all about being honest about what you enjoy and not being afraid to demonstrate that affection. It means never having to play it cool about how much you like something. It's basically a license to proudly emote on a somewhat childish level rather than behave like a supposed adult. Being a geek is extremely liberating. Those were the words of Simon Pegg, I'm Luke Hector, and you're listening to the Broken Meeple Podcast. The Broken Meeple, episode 26, moving forward. Happy New Year, it's 2015, and this show is all about what's to come. I start off by giving some news, including details of a new podcast, my predictions for 2015, and then my top 10 requests for game publishers. Seriously, get it right, guys. Hello, Happy New Year. It's 2015, and the podcast is still going strong. Well, we've had a good year for 2014 with regards to games. I admit it wasn't the best year I could think of for gaming. There were certainly a few disappointments along the way, but... Boy, we had over 2,000 games released, so there was certainly plenty of choice for us all to have. Although, I do hope they tone it down just a little bit, because let's face it, we can't collect 2,000 games. It's just not going to happen, and it's really hard trying to find the good from the bad. But, I digress. In terms of 2015, no, I'm still going to carry on with the blog and the podcast as per usual. My association with GamesQuest is still going strong as well, but more on that later. As for what's happening to me currently, I've started a new job as a tax manager working for Spofforth Chartered Accountants, and so far it's going well. I'm starting in pretty much the busiest season of the year, being January, funny enough, for the UK tax system. But so far, I'm glad that I switched jobs. Everyone's been very welcoming, everyone's just being generally quite helpful considering I am literally getting chucked in the swimming pool at the deep end and being forced to sink or swim. So we'll see how that goes. My probationary period is six months and well let's hope it goes well because I don't like shifting jobs too often. I want to find a job that I can not necessarily wake up feeling yay I'm going to go to work because let's face it I would like to hope most people don't do that. You know work to live not live to work. But I would certainly like to be able to get up in the morning and not be feeling depressed that I've got to go to work. I was starting to get that way at the end of 2014, so so far this is a marked improvement. So, let's get on with this episode, starting off with some very important news. So let's kickstart with the biggest news of all. I am now involved in a new podcast as part of my association with Games Quest. We are currently trialling the idea of the podcast and we have just finished recording our pilot episode. It's called The Order of the Dan Podcast and don't ask me about the name. I mean, one of the guys in it is called Dan and there's a bit of history as to why it's called that. But essentially it is a group of us, mostly four of us. However, there are other people that will drop in and drop out from time to time but there's going to be I think two regular hosts and then the rest of us are going to chime in whenever we need to. But essentially it's your standard board gaming podcast. We're going to discuss board gaming news, board gaming topics, do occasional sort of top three, top five lists and just generally banter and argue with each other and take the mick really. It's those classic podcasts where you have several people bouncing off each other and having a good time. I'm looking forward to how this progresses and 
I mean, and we've just done the pilot episode. I was part of it. So hopefully they will get that recorded, edited and sorted in the near future. But it's very refreshing to do a podcast where I'm actually talking with people. I've done things like the Dice Tower Showdown before, and that's been fun, but it's very difficult to get up at 2am in the morning to do a podcast because of, obviously, USA to UK time differences. Here now, it means I can do a podcast on a weekday evening, recording with some some moo mates who enjoy board gaming. And bouncing off each other has its own rewards when doing a podcast. I don't mind doing my current one, and I'm I'm not going to stop doing my current one. I like doing this podcast. But obviously, when you do it by yourself, you're basically spouting out information and you can only do so much. With several of you, though, you are basically having a nice debate and argument and it can just get hilarious at times. So I can't wait to see how this progresses. Uh, We have a Facebook page, Order of the Dan podcast on Facebook.com. It's a work in progress. We haven't sorted out a logo or anything like that yet. But if you want to get on there and just like the page, that would be appreciated. And essentially just keep up with Games Quest because I'm sure we will publicize the fact that we've got the podcast out in the near future. We're hoping to do it on a bi-weekly basis, but at the very least a monthly basis. Depends on people's time scales, etc. But, you know, this should be a good little regular thing. And, well, if things go really well, we'd love to be able to do live shows at various conventions. So, uh, UK Games Expo, take note. You know, if we get this running, if we get this famous, we want to do a live show. Okay? Just saying. We'll get that out there. Publisher NSKN has launched a new Kickstarter for their expansion to Exodus Proxima Centauri called Edge of Extinction. Of course, you can get the original revised edition of Exodus Proxima in the Kickstarter as well. But this expansion is quite a large one and it's expected to really allow you to have different factions with different abilities, new technologies, new ways of fighting. Basically a major expansion which I think this game probably needs at this point if it wants to compete with the likes of Twilight Imperium 3. Now the cost is not too bad. We're talking $105 for both games with stretch goals although that's not including UK shipping so we'll have to see how much that's going to have an effect. I'm on the back bench as to whether I'm going to invest in this or not because the game does look good but I really would like to try out the original revised edition of the game before I start investing another $100 in a game that I may never get to see the table. But it's already almost funded, I believe. I think it's only got something like $4,000 in order to go, and it's still got till February the 5th before it finishes. So if that game interested you and you want a new expansion or you're just looking for a decent Space 4X game and you think it might fit the bill, then give it a look and obviously share the news about it. My final piece of news is a bit of a controversial one, and that is Rio Grande Games have now announced a new expansion for Dominion called Adventures. This expansion is 400 cards big. This is a bigger expansion than I think all the other big box expansions, because I think they were usually, what were they, about like 200 and something cards? I mean, this is 400. There is a lot in this box. However, that's not the controversial thing. Rio Grande said, and I believe they quoted, that they were not going to do any more Dominion expansions, that Dominion was done. Now, everybody has been hard at work getting their collections together, collecting every card that Dominion has to offer. Not sure why, really, because to be honest, how would you ever use that many cards unless you played Dominion all the time? But I digress. 
But the idea is, is that they have got their whole collections. They're really proud of them. They've even invested, some of them have invested in this really nice looking wooden box, which has the Dominion logo laser etched onto it. And it holds all your cards in a nice carry case. Really, really good quality box. I mean, if I was collecting Dominion, I'd buy it in a flash. Problem is, now Dominion Adventures is coming out. Basically, Rio Grande has basically said to everyone, right, uh, your collections are now invalid. Your box is now useless. And you now need another 400 cards of us to give us money. That is not going to go down well with Dominion fans. I mean, yeah, they'll be pleased that there's more cards. But if you had basically spent a lot of time and money getting your collection to a decent level, only to be told that it now needs a complete revamp, wouldn't you just be a little bit ticked off with that? I know I would be. It's happened to me occasionally with other card games where they've sort of got a bit too bloated for their own good. And let's face it, do we really need another Dominion expansion? We've got loads of them already. How much more can you possibly do with a basic deck builder game? I've got Dominion and I've got, what, two expansions with it? Hinterlands and Seaside? I might get Prosperity, but in the end, there's only so many times you're going to play Dominion. There's only so many times you're going to use cards if you've got that many expansions. Not to mention it will just complicate the game with all these special rules which is not going to make it very good for casual gamers. So I'm not a huge fan of this piece of news really. I don't like the idea that they've gone back on their word and said that oh you know we're not going to do any more expansions. Oh look here's another one. You know it very much sounds like a cash cow situation and that word that phrase cash cow is going to get mentioned a few more times in this episode. Some very quick first impressions today because these two games are going to be ones that I will review in the near future. First up we have the newest game by Uwe Rosenberg which is Fields of Arl. Fields of Arl I would describe as if every single game invented by Uwe Rosenberg, or at least every single Euro game invented by Uwe Rosenberg, basically got together, had a child, and then that child was set with an arranged marriage with Stefan Feld. That's what Fields of Arl feels like. It basically is like a combination of his greatest hits, Agricola, Caverna, Glass Road, you know, all those classic Euro games that he's done. And then with a little bit of hinting of Stefan Feld in that everything is a gigantic point salad. But Field of Isle is based on almost like a biography of Uri Rosenberg's original family life. It talks about a family in Isle that, you know, started off as a small little farming village and then built itself up and the game basically replicates all those different things that they did so you start off with your field you've got all these different uh, building tiles that you can have you can raise animals much like in Agricola and Caverna you can build the rooms much like in Glass Road and Caverna you've got uh, dehydrated moors that you've got to clean up you've got uh, flooded areas that you need to dry up You've got peat that you can harvest, you've got tools that you can expand, you've got trading you can do, you can make clothes, you can fish. Honestly, this game has got so many options with it, it is frankly mind-boggling how much you can do in this game. Now, it only plays up to two players, and that's probably a good thing considering how much is in it. I can't imagine how long a three- or four-player game would take, but there is so much to do in here. I've tried it out solo first, I haven't tried it two-player yet, I'm going to do that with a friend soon, but so far... It's getting good vibes from me. You know, I like Agricola, I really love Caverna, and Glasgow Road, 
I didn't like the character selection part of it, but I liked everything else about it. And thankfully, there's no character selection in this Fields of Isle game, but it's got all the other cool bits from Glass Road. Well, not the rondelle mechanic. It's more the, it's more like the tiles you make replace other bits on the board, and obviously the buildings do different things. So it's, it's more like that. But certainly, this is a very cool game if you are at all any fan of Ure Rosenberg. I think it's worth a look. This is just based on first impressions, and I'm gonna give it a more detailed review in the near future in the Social Mood Games Quest because thankfully they provided me with a copy of the game, and it's not cheap, so I'm glad they did. But so far I'm really liking this I mean I I like games with decent solo variants and this one is going to be high up on there there's just so many different paths to victory and if you know anything about the way I like to game especially when the Order of the Damn podcast does its pilot episode you'll hear me talk about this in more detail but I love paths to victory I love being able to take a game choose a path go with it see what happens and then come back and try something completely different and still enjoy it this is one with all those paths to victory. You know, I could be a complete animal farmer. I could be a complete clothes maker. I could do nothing but trade. I could just expand all my tools. I could do nothing but fish. I could ignore animals entirely. I could do a balance of everything. It, oh, it's so much you can do. And quality components and that aside, this is going to be one of my top games of 2014, I think, at this rate. And I know I haven't done that top 10 list yet. You know, give me a break. This is a solo effort. It's not easy to play every single 2014 game that ever is. And I never will. You know, it's going to be physically impossible. But I've got at least three or four new 2014 games that I need to get played this month so that I can do a nice, decent top 10 of 2014. Otherwise, I think it's going to be lacking. So bear with me on that. I think, estimation, I'll have that ready by mid-February. So episode 27. Episode 27, I will do my top 10 of 2014, I promise, okay? Anyway, I'm getting off topic here. Let's get on with the other first impression. The next first impression is, well, let's bring Stefan Fell back to the table this time, and that's his new game, Aquasphere. Aquasphere is a game where you're on an underwater base researching these new black crystals that have just appeared, and... You have a engineer up in HQ above water who is basically giving commands to the engineer who's down below water, and you are programming these different robots to do different tasks. Some will update your lab, some will get you new research, some will take up black crystals, some will uh, get rid of all these octopod critters that keep littering the base and screwing up your results, that kind of thing. And the idea is, is that you go through this game in typical Stefan Feld style, earning points for just about everything you do, and then Euro game mechanics points at the end is the winner i know that sounds like a bit of a weird description but then that's really how you describe a stefan geld game in general and that's exactly the first impression i'm getting from this game that's not to say the game is bad the game is actually all right there's a surprising amount of depth in it despite the fact that this is a very light stefan feld compared to his other works but one thing that is well it's common with all stefan feld's theme what theme I described it about an underwater base getting research for crystals and all this stuff and that but you might as well have chucked that away and just called this mechanics by Stefan Feld because the theme in this game is 95% completely lost you know forget the fact that you're on an underwater base programming robots and stuff you are basically just harvesting points in various ways to try and win the game the game plays well and the mechanics are pretty sound and it's not that complicated a game you have to get into your head the difference between programming a bot and then using the bot to do its programmed action 
but there's a lot of long-term planning you can do in this game it's not too restricted on your choices you know you can't do everything but you can certainly try different things each game i don't think it's got the legs to have too many replays but i'm certain it's you know not too bad i reckon it's going to be popular with stefan fell fanatics but yeah theme be gone the theme is non-existent here and if you're looking for a thematic euro then you probably aren't even looking for stefan Feld in the first place but i would you know go back to yuri rosenberg for a thematic euro game but it's an all right game this is just first impressions i tried a four player recently and it went over quite well although analysis paralysis really does slow that game down you know so maybe i'll try it with two or three players and see how that goes because i don't know i hate it when things bog down from analysis paralysis and that's not to say that i'm not subject to that i have times where i think hard about the game as well so you know i'll hold my hand up there and say that occasionally i get ap but most of the time i just tend to pick a strategy and go with it you know i'm usually quite good at planning ahead and you know thinking of an idea and then just going with it um, maybe that comes from my old school days where i used to play chess a lot because um, that required a lot of forward thinking and sort of quick planning but Certainly, I can be subject to AP, but there are some times where I do look at people and say, oh, for crying out loud, will you just get on with your turn? You know, when they're asking questions about every single option they can possibly do. And it's like, just pick one and go with it. It's a learning game. Just go with it, please. Ay. Ah, well, again, digressing. But Aquasphere, meh. It's pretty good in some respects, but it's lacking in others. So we'll see how this one goes. Moving on to the discussion topic for the day, and it's essentially my predictions for 2015. 2015, I think, is going to be a game changer in many respects. But, you know, 2014 brought in a lot of games, and there were some pretty innovative ideas there. But I think 2015 is going to be one of those interesting years where something we don't expect suddenly just happens out of the blue. And when that happens, I reckon it's going to be taken mostly positively. but you know, we have had some negative buzz on things over the years. But here are four main predictions that I've got for 2015. First up, apps. Now, we've had companion apps with scoring like Seven Wonders and making things easier, like Sentinels of the Multiverse, for example, and they're very useful. I love them. I think they need to be done more. But we are now starting to get apps in games where they're actually a fundamental part of the gameplay. Alchemist came out last year and use the cool little scanning facility to work out the ingredients for potions so that you could deduce what made what that was pretty cool and certainly it was a lot easier than trying to do it the other way but you also now have XCOM coming out later this month i believe where you have the app really much being a focal point of the game not just simply the board game doing stuff but the app controls a lot as well and I reckon we're going to get more of this. I think board game designers are going to start realizing that we live in a technological modern world and start using apps in more funky ways in their games. And I'm all for it. Please do, because I reckon that will be pretty sweet. And if it helps gameplay, speeds up the setup or anything like that, then put the app in. And all these naysayers who think, oh, apps are replacing all the cool components and stuff like that. Okay, yes, you don't have much else to manipulate. But seriously... Everybody has a smartphone. Everybody can get a free app. And if you're worried about battery, then here's a tip. Charge it. Okay? It's not that difficult to charge a phone every night. You know, ugh. 
But I, I, mean, I don't know, I rant on, but I see, I reckon apps are going to be more prominent in games this year, and I hope they do. A very quick joke prediction for now, I reckon that AEG is going to release at least another 10 to 20 different versions of Love Letter this year, because, let's face it, it's getting stupid now. We have Love Letter Batman, for crying out loud. How's that going to work? Is people Are people sending romantic letters to Batman, of all things, or is it going to be like a damsel in distress call? You know, I, I don't know, but seriously. And now we've got The Hobbit as well. We've got the we've had a we've had love letter normal, love letter Japanese, love letter wedding. It's getting ridiculous. Just stop it, okay? I like love letter, but I don't need a million different variations of the game. It's gonna start annoying people, so stop already. But I reckon that they're still gonna print out a ton of these love letters, and despite better judgment, you know, it's gonna continue on. And that links in some ways to my third prediction for this year. I reckon that publishers are going to start losing their way and start cashing in far too much on these franchises. Because, as I mentioned with Love Letter, you know, this is a game that came out a while back, is popular, but really should have just stopped there and then. Maybe one or two variations, but that should have been it. Now it just seems that they're milking the cash cow far too much here and just bringing out constant variations of Love Letter just to cash in. And other games are doing this as well. I mean, I mentioned Dominion Adventures earlier on. That has got to be a cash cow attempt because we they didn't need another expansion for Dominion. But it sounds like they're just cashing in on the hope that they're just going to sell it to Dominion fans. And there are other games as well where you do get, you know, far too many expansions far too quickly. I mean, LCGs have that problem where the expansions come out so fast you never get a chance to play what's just come out. You know, they could do with slowing down a little bit. but. I reckon that this is going to be a problem with other things. I think that some publishers out there are going to start, rather than trying to get out new ideas, they're going to start looking at their old stuff and just going, well, this was popular, so let's just put out another version of it and cash in. You know, I mean, King of New York could almost be thought of as a bit of a cash in, because even though I prefer it to King of Tokyo, it's still very much the same game, just with some tweaks. So, you know, did we really need it? And... I don't know, this worries me. I mean, it's not a massive problem, I suppose, because in the end, if you don't want it, you don't have to buy it. So it's not like they're forcing you to buy the newest Dominion expansion, for example. But certainly, I am a little concerned that the publishers are starting to go down the way of the video games industry, where cashing in suddenly becomes a major thing. I hope they don't, though, because one thing I like about board games over video games is that they most of the time, people don't cash in like video games do. And don't tell me that video game industries do not cash in. Just look at all the movie license games that exist out there that are horrifically bad. You know, watch Angry Joe's show. He goes through a ton of them as to how bad they are. But, well, we'll see how that continues. And my final prediction is that I think this is going to be a very expansion-heavy year. 2014 had some pretty good expansions in it. We had Terra Mystica's Fire and Ice, which was pretty good. We had Seven Wonders Babel, which was brilliant. A review on that will be coming soon via Games Quest. And what else do we have? We had Clash of Cultures Civilizations. That was pretty good as well. It certainly beefed up the original game, which needed some improvement. And... I suppose King of, Tokyo, King of New York could be considered an expansion because it's not exactly a great deal different, even though it's standalone. Uh, even Carcassonne had expansions during the early part of the year. Obviously, all the LCGs are getting expansions. Uh, the Resistance has had expansions. You know, so there's a lot of expansions. 
But I reckon 2015 is going to continue this trend. I reckon there's a lot of games out there that are going to get second expansions or first expansions, you know, or mini expansions, that kind of thing. And I reckon that maybe people are starting to run out of ideas for games. So maybe it's now a time where people are going to start expanding old ones in order to make them better. You know, correct the errors and or streamline some of the issues that it had, or even just make them more involved and more epic. You know, I've got nothing against that, so it should be pretty cool if that is the case. for the top 10 and this is essentially a call out to game publishers for 2015. You've had many years dealing with board games. We've had some very good surprises and some major controversies in the last few years and now it's a new year and it's time for you to start learning from mistakes. So these are my top 10 requests that I am making to game publishers. Ways to improve their games, ways to make up for past discretions, you know, and just ways to generally make life that little bit more enjoyable for us gamers. Obviously, I know you guys have got to make money, but, you know, in the end, if we enjoy your games more, we'll give you more money. So it all works in the same way. So let's kick start off with number 10. Number 10. And I'm starting off on a minor note here. This is squeaking in on the list, but board game covers. Now, the board game doesn't have to have the most striking cover ever, and you don't have to put blow your entire budget on the cover, but at least make it relatively interesting. If the board game has got a cover that really doesn't make much sense of the game, or is really bland and boring, it's unlikely for me to that I'm going to give it a second look when I glance it on an online page or when somebody shows it as an option in a board game night. Some games do a good job of that. You know, Fantasy Flight do some very good box covers and even Asmodee do some pretty good ones as well. But there are some box covers which just make you really want to avoid the game or just don't really, don't make you think, oh, this is pretty good. And typically Euro games tend to suffer from that. Euro games will have this habit of just putting like a picture of a castle or a guy on horseback or something like that as their cover. And we see that so often in board games. Why do we need it constantly in Euro games? Differentiate your Euro game and give us something that's really striking and gorgeous. That is to say, though, don't lie about your board covers either. Do not like sell me the game on the board cover alone. Hyperborea, for example, had a you know really gorgeous box cover really nice but it threw a few people off because they were expecting this really cool sort of a Merifrash game and it's actually still a really really good game it's one of my favorites from last year but it's a euro game in its own right so you've got to be a little bit careful with that but that is to say Hyperborea is one of those examples where it has a cover that really makes me go Ooh, what's this? You know, really colourful, really striking. Shows all the different races you can be. You know, informative yet good-looking, but not lying to you. And that's what I'm trying to say here. Number nine, and this is linked to previous mentions that I've had regarding the Dominion expansion and Love Letter, etc. Stop cashing in, okay? 
you know, these cash cow tactics have got to stop. We don't need another 10 million love letters. We don't need another 100 Dominion expansions. We do not need rehashes of the same franchise. We need new and ingenious games or expansions to old games. You know, if you want to, you know, milk the... Well, okay, that sounds a bit weird. I've just mentioned Dominion. But let's have expansions to games that haven't had expansions yet. You know, Dominion's had so many expansions and there's only so much you can do with just simple card expansions. Now, okay, there are going to be some exceptions to this where I'm happy to get every expansion that comes out. Sentinels in the Multiverse would be a classic example as long as they bring out new stuff that is fun and intuitive. But some games could really use an expansion. You know, I mean, Hyperborea's ripe for a decent expansion. Uh, we've already had some games like Clash of Cultures and Terra Mystica get their badly needed expansions. And, you know, there's plenty out there that could be just one expansion. You know, just one expansion just to make it that bit better. But let's not just rehash different versions of the same game. You know, 20 editions of Love Letter. and You know, do we really need 20 Love Letters? Because it feels like 20. I don't know exactly how many there are, but there's a lot. And Munchkin is another example. You know, all these different rehashes of Munchkin. I mean, seriously, it's not even that good a game. Can we stop it with the Munchkins? It's... We need new games. Just stop cashing in. Don't turn into the video game industry. All right, let's have some nice, unique expansions or some unique games. No cash-ins. Number eight. Think about the box sizes for your games. Now, the standardized box size, that tends to happen like Ticket to Ride and what's other examples. Uh, Chaos in the Old World is one example of a box size. But generally, that standard square box. Uh, Lord of the Rings, the card game, Netrunner, they all come in those standardized box sizes. It's a good size, and for most games, that's pretty good and pretty adequate. However, if your game is like a card game for example don't sell me a game where there is a ton of empty space and like barely any cards to fit it unless you're planning to do frequent expansions because it's really annoying having that box like that you know why can't you make a smaller box and um, because if i have a big box to start with i might not want the expansion therefore i've got this extra space being taken up that i don't need to why not do it like smash up did Smash Up was a good example. It had a smallish box. It released expansions, but the box was big enough to hold them until it got too big for its britches. And then in a further expansion, it released a big box so that everybody who's already collected it up to this point could buy that box. A little bit of a cash-in, I'll admit, but it works. And other games should do this as well. You know, Marvel Legendary uh, has boxes that were huge for what you got, but they bring out frequent expansions. But maybe I would have preferred to have had a smaller box to begin with, and then later on they bring out a big box, you know, and see how that works. So I'm just saying, you know, be careful with your box sizes. You know, Fantasy Flight's actually improved on this. They used to be really bad for box sizes. But you remember Citadels? No, nowadays you get it in a nice small thin box, and it's perfect size. It takes up barely any space. Great game. Glad to have it on my shelf. But the original game was far too big for the box. It just wasn't needed. And if the game is too big to store, then it's going to put people off wanting to buy it. I mean, I know some games need that bigger box. But if it needs the box, then fine. Make it big enough so that it fits everything. But I don't like storing air, okay? I don't need to buy air. I, you know, If the box is too big for what it is, then... You know, find a way to tone it down. You know, is it really that expensive just to design a different size box? 
My number seven, and we're going to start getting into some more serious issues that I have with some of the stuff that publishers do. Number seven is invest in new applications for your games. And when I say applications, I mean my iPad apps, you know, Android apps. Invest in getting apps for your games. Now, I'm not saying that the game has to be replaced with an app, and I don't just mean simply port it onto an iPad. I'm talking about companion apps. Companion apps work so well for games, and you can give the choice that they don't have to use it. But let's take One Night Werewolf. Who here plays One Night Werewolf without the app? You use the app one way or the other. Seven Wonders, it is now mandatory to use the app for scoring because it will take you forever otherwise. Other apps that have come out for companions are Sentinels of the Multiverse has got the Sidekick app. Works very well, very useful. That's what I'm talking about. They don't have to be intricately designed and flashy images and god knows what else, although that is pretty cool. They just need to be functional. And if they save time for setup or scoring, that's fine as well. Terra Mystica, you know, has a fairly lengthy scoring bit. You know, Fields of Arl, you know, <laughs> Caverna, they could do with some scoring apps for nice ease. You know, any any Euro game could do with a scoring app where you've got to score a hundred different things. Hyperborea could actually do with those. There's quite a few ways to get points in Hyperborea, and a scoring app would be quite useful for that as well. Even a little randomizer for what, like, power and player you start off with you know just things like that nice little simple things that you could easily get an app designer to do i don't know how much it is to design an app but considering the amount of apps that are out there can't be that expensive can it number six now we're really getting into some more serious stuff here first up this is going to be linked to one that's coming up later on, but in your rulebook you need to have setup diagrams for the game, and they need to be clear, concise, step-by-step -step procedures, not jumbled all over the place, and they need to have a nice picture color diagram with arrows pointing to the various bits. Now, Robinson Crusoe had a pretty good one for that, although Robinson Crusoe has a pretty dodgy rulebook in itself, and to be fair, it was a very convoluted setup diagram, so it wasn't the best one there. But Waggle Dance. Waggle Dance recently had a brilliant setup diagram. It was really easy to follow, and you could set up the game in minutes. Uh, Aquasphere has a, an okay setup diagram, but the arrows and the bits that go around it are a bit jumbled all over the place, and you find yourself looking at different edges of the rulebook trying to find out which bit you're looking for. So it needs to be clear. Clear, logical, intuitive setup diagrams with decent pictures and step-by-step -step procedures. Don't combine a ton of things in one step. Even if you've got to do 30 steps, if they're simple, then fine. But you know, make it clear how to set up your game. Because in the end, I want to spend my time playing a game, not setting it up. You know, I like having all the components and da-da-da, but if I've got to spend forever trying to remember, right, does he get two of those? Does that piece go there? Where does these cards go? You know, things like that. It just spoils the atmosphere for me. So sort out your rulebook, set up diagrams, and make them clear. Number five, and I accept that for some games this is probably going to be an impossibility, but think about the table space when you are designing, well not designing, when you are publishing a game. Now, you know, some of us have to play these games in pubs or little clubs with small tables. So if your game is one that takes up so much space, 
because of a board that doesn't need to be that big or components that are littered all over the place on the side of the boards rather than on the board on specific spaces then it's going to be a major issue. There are some games I cannot take to some of our board gaming nights because they're take up far too much space for their typical tables. Now okay, people at home have big tables and that's fine, but then even my table at home is not fantastic for some, although granted it is an oval shaped poker table so yeah that does have its own, that's probably mostly my doing for why that has a problem. You know, when I move house in the future I will definitely invest in a nice big square table. Boy, I would love to have a geek sheet table. Oh, that would be nice. But yeah, that's indulgence. There's no way I'm going to be able to afford that. But certainly think about how much space your thing is taking up. If it's taking up like a whopping great big giant IKEA square oak table, then maybe consider that some people are going to have trouble playing this game. You know, make your board so that things stay on the board rather than on the edges of the board because obviously that's more table space. You know, your board your game board could be functional in the sense that it stores components and cards. Even if it's just the outline of a card where you put the deck, it certainly saves space by having it not on the board itself. You know, so that's what I'm saying. Think about how much space your game is taking up on the table and try and condense it down as much as possible without losing functionality. Okay, now we might start getting into some more rants more than anything else. And number four is invest in some decent punch board when you're doing your components. Now, what I mean by that is when you buy a game and it's got all these like little cardboard components, they all come on these square punch board sheets and you have to spend time punching them all out and sorting them all out. That's fine. But if you're going to do that, make the quality of the punch board decent, okay? Have it so that when you actually poke these things, they come out of the wretched board, okay? I'm getting sick and tired, especially with some people like May Mayfair Games, you better take note here, and some of the more like small-time designers, you know, the ones that don't have as many games to their name maybe, they try to cut the cost by having really rubbish punch board, and it, I hate when you punch something out of a punch board and it doesn't come out, it just hangs there because for some reason it hasn't detached from the paper that's on the punch board so that you have to rip it off carefully. And sometimes you'll get it that it's impossible to do it without ripping part of the the paper that's on the component. So suddenly you have this component with a ripped piece off it and it's getting on my nerves. Okay, how bad can it be just to get some decent thick cardboard? Make it so that these things come out of the wretched board when you punch the things, okay? It's getting on my nerves when it takes forever to do it because you punch 10 tokens in a row, eight of them haven't come out of the board, and you have to carefully snip them off with a pair of scissors or a little craft knife to make certain that you keep it in decent nick, okay? I want to be able to just go dun, 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 across the entire lot, and everything just comes off. And, um, I mean, I'm going to make a major call-out. Uh, check game editions. I had a lot of problems with your alchemist punch boarding stuff particularly with the stands and that seriously improve on that but i just want to be able to get them out of that punch board as quickly as possible without damaging the components you know because in the end if we want to sell it on for example it's going to have an effect if the components don't look good because we couldn't get them out of the thing to start with so it's a Maybe it's more of a personal thing, but I'm sure there must be other people there who are getting a little bit annoyed with bad quality punch boards. 
number three, and we're going to move on to LCGs and well, not necessarily CGGs, but LCGs and large card games, and I mean things like Marvel Legendary, Sentinels of the Multiverse, Smash Up, that kind of thing. If you're going to give us a game that has a ton of cards in it that are all sorted into different types and attributes and factions and that, can you give us some decent dividers? Okay. Marvel Legendary, seriously, Upper Deck, what is it with you and your bad dividers? You give us these really thin cardboard bits with the Legendary logo on it, and that's it. That's not a divider. That doesn't help me. Okay, yes, it separates out the cards, but it doesn't tell me what's on the cards. I have had to invest a lot of time printing dividers off BoardGameGeek that some very nice contributors have given that make the game so much better. How long did it take me to get my uh, Marvel Legendary set complete with all these dividers? And Lord of the Rings, the card game, for example, same sort of thing. Android Netrunner, again, same thing. Dominion, same thing. Give us some dividers so that we can say, right, this is this deck, this is this deck. And they don't have to be massive quality. They don't have to be, like, intricately, massively thick and colourful and all that. Just functional even just a divider with the game's logo on it and a tab at the top that says event deck or player one deck or something you know or marvel legendary you know you have heroes masterminds you know or separate them out by each hero that'd be even better i'm really getting sick and tired of all these cheap dividers because it really it wastes my time having to print them off board game geek and laminate them and cut them out you know that takes time and i don't have a lot of time on my hands but i'm forced to do it in order to make the game easier to play and set up now i'm gonna make some call outs i mean i've already said some bad ones like you know lcgs fantasy flight you need to start working on this and upper deck you really need to improve your dividers because I mean, I had the same problem with uh, Legendary Alien deck building game. Where were the dividers on that? Rubbish dividers again. And I've had to print more out, and it's taken time. Seriously, if you're going to print a massive card game, print dividers. But I'm going to give kudos to two in particular. Sentinels of the Multiverse. So, greater than games, I believe it was. Now, they, their dividers are okay. They're not the best quality. They do sort of like fall apart a little bit too easily in that over over time. But they're colourful and they make sense and they tell me exactly what each bit is and it's kept within the theme. Very good dividers and I hope they continue doing that and more people need to realise this. But, oh my god, AEG, you are now the new king of dividers. What you did for Smash Up in the big geeky box was amazing. We needed dividers badly with Smash Up and you weren't providing them in previous expansions. But now we've got the big geeky box, and those dividers are gorgeous. They are thick card with glossy pictures on them. Huge pictures depicting the race. Big letters, words saying what the race is. And the big geeky box just makes Smash Up so much better and nicer to look at and easier to play because you can look at the dividers and see what's what. It enables you to sort out your card collection really well. Dominion, I cannot believe this has come out for so long and never had dividers. How many different decks of cards do you have? And if you don't have a way of sorting them out, it's just... Ugh, I don't know. I don't know why some more publishers aren't doing this. How expensive can it be to do dividers? I'm sure everybody would welcome dividers. Seriously. Start printing dividers. Now! Now! 
Number two can be sort of linked to my previous one, but this is going to apply to board games in general. Sort out your inserts. I am getting fed up with cheap plasticky inserts that are so, or even cardboard inserts, that are so useless in their functionality that the first thing you do is chuck it away without even considering whether it could be used for anything else. Fantasy Flight, what is it with your inserts, man? All you do is put in this cardboard insert that's folded up with a little gully, effectively, for things to go in. And it never holds the game in any decent way once you've got everything out and sleeved it and like put it in boxes and that. So we are forced to chuck it away and we just basically have an empty box. What? How hard can it be to do an insert? Actually, that's probably a stupid question. I'm certain it's probably quite difficult to do a decent insert. But, you know, Days of Wonder, Five Tribes had a a reasonable good insert although i will say this for days of wonder and other publishers as well seriously when you put a space for cards and you stick them in there and they're shrink wrapped guess what when i take them out of the box they're not shrink wrapped anymore okay so make sure they fit in there when you put them back i've had so many times where the cards like flop around at the top and also realize that some of us like to sleeve our games, okay? Make your insert big enough so that cards can fit while sleeved. If they're not sleeved, then it's not like they're going to fall out of the box anytime soon. They're still in there, they're still in there, but make it... Add in those couple of millimeters so that the sleeved card can fit in there. It's getting really annoying. And just figure out a way to do some decent inserts. You know, King of Tokyo's insert was pretty good before it started doing expansions. But other games are just being really lazy with inserts. They just assume that everyone's just going to chuck it away and just do whatever they like in them. That's why we have to spend money going to places like the Broken Token and the US likes uh, Rob Searing as well. And where else have I had to go to for inserts? Oh, yeah, Daedalus, the new Kickstarter. I'm still waiting for my order, by the way. And, you know, that costs money to do inserts. I mean, granted, it's nice that they've got a business, but... If you've just designed a decent insert in the first place, I wouldn't have to worry about this kind of thing. It makes setup so much easier, it makes it look nicer, and it stores the game so that everything's kept in better condition. Start thinking about some decent inserts, particularly you, Fantasy Flight. Finally, with number one, and I reckon a few of you could probably have guessed this one was coming. Tom Vassell shares my thoughts on this at this level, and even Z and Sam Healy put it pretty high on their list as well when they did this list uh, a couple of years ago now, was it now? Yeah, probably a couple of years ago when they did this list. But rulebooks. Sort your rulebooks out. Get them proofread by someone who's not played the game before. Lay them out in a clear, structured fashion so that you can read through it as you play a game. Don't jumble up the order of all the bits in it. I want colour pictures, setup diagrams like I mentioned before. But make certain that your rulebook is complete, easy to understand, and doesn't require like a 50-page fact booklet two days after it came out. Okay, Robinson Crusoe... Uh, by Z-Man is a good example of this. Now, Robinson Crusoe is quite a heavy game, so it's going to be hard to learn anyway, but the rulebook's not doing it any favours. It is very hard to follow that rulebook, even with the setup diagram that it has. I mean, with all the fiddly components in that game, it's I suppose that's got, you kind of expect that, but the rulebook really could have been worded better. And have you seen the length of the fact booklet with Robinson Crusoe? I bet most veteran players of this game are still getting rules wrong, because it is hard to follow. But there are other games that have done this as well. Uh, um, 
what was it called? Station? Panic Station. The rule book on that was so bad that people had to do a revised book online just to understand how to play the game. And another one, 12 Realms by Mage Company, that had a similar problem where everyone's had to do an online revised rulebook because apparently it is nigh on impossible to play the game from the original rulebook. Even the Lord of the Rings card game rulebook could have been better, but it's not too bad. But you need to make... I need pictures, okay? If you're going to explain a rule, show a small little picture that explains what you're on about. Make them structured, clearly labelled. I want to see setup. Then I want to see turn order. Then I want to see different actions. And then at the end, you can put all the useless rubbish like credits and facts, if anyone has them, and little minor complicated details, okay? But I need a structure to these rule books. I need to be able to follow them. I need the setup diagram so that I can put the thing together. I need the clear, explained rules, each little bit with pictures so that any schmuck can read the rule book and explain it, okay? I mean, I have a lot of games. Okay, but a lot of people have got a lot more games than I have, by far. And, you know, it's not easy for us to learn the rules of so many games and keep them in our head. So, assume that we're going to forget rules from time to time. So make it easy for us to go back and find out what they are. You know, enough with these complicated rule books. There are some games that I've got that are so hard for me to bring to the table because the rule books either don't make sense or are very difficult to follow. You know, make it easier for us. Get someone who has not been involved with the design process or the publishing process and get them to read your rule book and give you their opinions, okay? I I mean, I'm not going to do it myself. I ain't got enough time. But you must be able to pay somebody just to proofread your rule book so that they can look at it and go, I don't know what this means, or this doesn't make any sense, or this could be better over here. You know, novelists need an editor, right? So surely you could do a similar job with a rulebook. If a casual gamer can pick up your rulebook and understand how to play the game, to an extent, I mean obviously it usually takes a couple of plays to get really to grips with the game, but they should be able to at least have a decent stab at it from the word go after reading your rulebook, even if they have to play the game while reading the rulebook, so that they follow the setup and then they go, right, turn one, we can do this, this and this, and do a learning game. But if you make your rulebook convoluted, it spoils the game. And I bet you there are some games out there, 12 Realms for example, but there are others, who have suffered in their sales because their rulebook is so difficult to comprehend. Get your rulebooks sorted now. That's my top 10 tips or requests for game publishers. Now, I don't know how many of them were even listened to this podcast, but I'm just saying that some of them need to take note. And I hope that during 2015, some of the points that I've mentioned on here will get taken up by publishers and they will listen and improve. Now, obviously, it's not easy to publish a game. And I understand that. It's not a simple job. I don't do it myself, so I can hardly say that I'm an expert in this field. But... There are some things that really need to be sorted, particularly I would say the dividers in card games, the rule books, and I would probably say the inserts and punch boards need to be decent as well. Now if you want to gloss over a little bit on the box size and the cover and the table space, I can get around that. But you know, and the apps apps would be cool, but that's a bit more of a luxury request than anything else. 
But those first few I mentioned, I really hope they get them sorted. Because if they don't, then games are not going to reach the pinnacle that they could. But that's it for me now for episode 26. I'm going to love you and leave you guys. For episode 27, I will promise that I will do my top 10 of 2014. So by that point, I should have played all the remaining games from 2014 that I want to play so that I can give a decent opinion on my top 10. Now, I gave a top 10 into Games Quest recently so they could do their top 10 chart, and I don't know whether they did a gr- whether they posted their individual ones, I'm not sure. But certainly I had a fair few games that were still missing that I had to play first. And that includes things like Alchemist, Star Wars Imperial Assault, um, certain there's a couple of others. Uh, what else is there? You Was Euphoria a 2014 game? I think I need to play that. You know, there's quite a few things. So I want to get them played before I start commenting too much. But I promise you, episode 27 will have that list. As for what else in that episode... I'm not entirely sure, but I'm hoping by that point that the first episode of the Order of the Damn podcast will be released and you guys will be able to enjoy that. I will link to it on this blog. I will publicize it as much as I do my own podcast. So I hope that will be enjoyable for you as well and maybe give you a different insight into my style of board gaming because obviously I'll have other people to bounce on and off with and I can give opinions on theirs as well. So that's it for me. I'm going to get on with the rest of my day, starting with, well, first, editing this podcast. But then I think I need to get myself down to the gym because there's been far too much cake at work recently with lots of birthdays and people leaving. So take care. Enjoy yourself. Keep playing games. And remember, it's about the people, not just the games. To find out more about board games and the Broken Meeple in general, you can visit one of the three main avenues we have online. First up, there is the blog itself on www.brokenmeeple.blogspot.co.uk. You can also find the Broken Meeple on Facebook. Please come and like the page and share your thoughts with me. And on Twitter, you can find me at the Broken Meeple. 